1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS Programme. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every week with their news and their views, and we have very definite views and we make no apology for them because we are here to defend and to promote public education, and that is education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's publicly accessible to all children should be no fees, no tests at all for entry for any child in a public school. Should also be public in ownership and control, and the only one, the only system which is publicly funded because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. Now we know that although this is our very best inheritance from our forefathers of the 19th century. That halfway through the 20th century and certainly into the 21st century, this is no longer the case because a parasite system, the private system, is receiving loads and loads, billions and billions of dollars of public money and education for many has become an industry, a for-profit industry and people, shareholders who wish to make money, particularly hedge fund shareholders, are out to privatise the whole lot. OK, we have a, a website at www.adogs.info and this is our press release 696. Public education up for sale worldwide. As the economic and academic arguments, not to mention any egalitarian arguments based on need, fade into the myths of history the rationalisation of state aid to private religious schools in Australia is falling back on the argument of choice. Although we in Australia find that America under Trump is reality trumping satire, in the education sphere we are in fact further down the slippery slope in Australia to privatisation and church-state entanglement than the United States at the current time. Even the Gonski Plan, beloved by those concerned for disadvantaged children and their hearts are certainly in the right place, even the Gonski Plan is thoroughly undermined by an assumed voucher-style per capita grant with no school losing any public money caveat. So Australia got there before other countries 40 years ago. The Nobel Prize-winning economic economist Milton Friedman designed an educational voucher plan some 60 years ago that was adopted by Sweden and Chile, and in our own way, Australia also adopted it. Under his plan, families use vouchers at any approved private school. Several states and cities in the US currently sponsor voucher approaches for students from, from low-income families, that are, and these are used mainly at religiously affiliated schools. But it should be added that because of their First Amendment and also the um, religious clauses, religious freedom clauses in various state uh, legislatures, uh, constitutions, sorry, there, there has been a pushback for vouchers, against vouchers in the United States. So it's not uh, in all states by any manner of means. However, rising populism and identity politics are leading to increased demands from families seeking out specific types of schools that support their own peculiar beliefs. In some countries, this has extended to replacing the public system of schools with government vouchers that can be used to pay for private schools. And this is the priority of Betsy DeVos, the nominee for United States Education Secretary. Well, as we all know, she's not just the nominee, she is the Education Secretary. There was a tied vote in the Congress, but Deputy President Pence, a good representative of the religious right, I believe, uh, broke and gave her the uh, actual secretaryship. So the people in the United States, public school people in the United States, are girding their loins for an almighty battle. Mm. Now, advocates argue that school choice promotes competition and that will improve performance and allow the freedom of choice that will best serve student educational needs and family preferences. Well, we all know that some children do not learn in competitive environments and that competitive environments and competition between schools rather than collaboration between schools um, does not necessarily lead to better re- results are uh, quite the reverse. Mm. There is an inherent tension also between unfettered school choice and a common educational experience that will ensure that students are prepared for the demands of a democratic society. And our public education systems are in fact the cornerstone of our democratic society. You must have well-educated citizens in a democracy. And the public system has served us well to date. Families, however, have their own private goals. The family is the basis of an oligarchy. The family is certainly the basis of an aristocracy. And their own reasons for preferring particular types of schooling experience. Friedman, Milton Friedman, Like so many academics who wish to avoid conflicting ideas, merely place them in tandem, as if no conflict between them existed. Listen to what he says. A stable and democratic society is impossible without a minimum degree of literacy and knowledge on the part of most citizens, and without widespread acceptance of some common set of values. Now he just accepts that, and then he goes on, to uh, promote educational vouchers, namely unfettered choice. Mm. Now, these two are in obvious conflict, but if you just put them together, then there does not appear to be conflict. And I've noticed this over the years as an educationist or somebody who's been talking about educational matters again and again. In academia, to be politically correct, academics will put conflicting ideas together as if they go in tandem and there is no conflict. This was certainly the case with the Carmel Report of 1973 and it was also the same with the Gonski Report. And, of course, the problems with the Gonski uh, Program are now coming to light because no school was going to lose any money. Now, Henry Levin, who's the Professor of Economics and Education at Columbia University in New York... Uh, has recently written on this subject and he says that school choice hasn't improved student performance in schools around the world. The results of vouchers are now coming in. Privatisation, in fact, does not work. And the dogs have been saying this for years. We said it wouldn't work in the 1960s and now the the numbers are on the board. The numbers on the board in, um, in, in the computer programs and up on the uh, school website. Uh, that uh, Gillard started. Instead, voucher and school choice has led to the systematic segregation of students by ethnicity, by social class and by religion. The dog said this would happen once state aid started and it now has certainly happened. Levin also says that there's very little evidence to support the claim of choice and voucher advocates that competitive incentives induced by school choice will lead to better educational outcomes. And this is what he says. Sweden has had an educational voucher system since 1992. Norway hasn't, and neither does Denmark. But Sweden's achievement levels on international tests have been falling for the last two decades. Chile also had such a system since 1980 and there's little evidence of improvement in achievement relative to countries at similar levels of income and as we know the young people have been out in their thousands and hundreds of thousands protesting in the streets about it. Cleveland Milwaukee and the District of Columbia have issued vouchers to low-income families, but sophisticated evaluations find no difference between achievement in private voucher schools and public schools with similar student populations. Students from low-income families in Louisiana who have used vouchers to shift from public to private schools have experienced striking reductions in achievement gains relative to similar students in public schools. In England... There's been a dramatic shift from schools governed by public councils to academies run by private groups with great autonomy and the ability to select their own students. The results on student achievement show no distinct advantage and there are similar results for United States charter schools based upon careful statistical comparisons. Sweden's vouchers have, surprise, surprise, increased segregation by social class and immigrant status. Chile's voucher system has produced one of the most segregated systems of schools in the world by family income. In the Netherlands, studies of the school choice system have pointed to school separation of students by ethnicity, immigrant status, and family income. Uh, uh, in, um, In the Netherlands, they started state aid, I think, in the 1920s. And Australia is about where they were in percentage terms of children in in private schools where they were in about 1970. A Brookings Institution study found that US charter schools are more segregated racially and socioeconomically than public schools in surrounding areas. And the Programme for International Student Assessment, which is an important triennial study of international student performance, finds school segregation by social class is associated with school choice. Now, even though... Um, Public schools have segregation challenges typically caused by residential location. School choice tends to streamline the racial, social class and ethnic isolation of students as well as separate them by political ideology and religion. Parents have their own private goals for their children and ample opportunities to pursue them and schools account for only 10% of the waking hours of the young between birth and age 18 freeing most of the time, actually, for family experience. They also have a constitutional right to send their children to religious schools in most countries. The question is how to balance the quest for school choice with preparation of the young for the shared values and knowledge necessary for an effective democracy. Universal school choice will undermine a shared experience and further exacerbate conflict and social division. It's actually based on tribalism, isn't it? The challenge for education is to find forms of choice that ensure exposure of all students to the experiences they need for democratic participation. Now, Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools organisation picked up the findings of Henry Levin and um, he's also uh, recorded them, as the dogs have. And Diana Ravitch, it must be noted, has actually been sounding the warning that public education's up for sale uh, worldwide for some time. But Kobold and Ravitch have yet to reach the logical position which was taken by our 19th century predecessors and by the dogs who established our democratic institutions in the first place. Our forebears realised that the only way to protect the institutions set up for the public good from those who wish to exploit it for their own ends, ideological or economic, was to make them genuinely public. As we've said before, in purpose, outcome, access, ownership, control and accountability and above all, with sole public funding. And this can only be done by resiling from any entanglements between religion and the state and proper resourcing of public schools. So that is our... um, our press release, 696. And uh, we'll have a little break now for a bit of music and then Robert has got lots and lots of very interesting material for us this afternoon.
2: Welcome back to the dogs program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yeah, that was Clermon Bowles uh, from his suite in C major. Yes, we're here to defend and promote public education, as Jim was quite rightly saying. And yes, I do have some interesting things. Well, I find them interesting. hope you do too. Um, I think today's program, from my point of view, is going to be one of those, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Um, I'm just going to listen to my listeners through the ether and say, Look, well, we'll do the bad news first and then we can finish on something good. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say bad news, it's I find it fascinating. Um, often I, here on the Dogs Programme, discuss in detail what I call the mendacious middle classes of Australia, um, being the sort of consumers of the idea of a marketised education process and so a marketised education system. Um, as part of the Fairfax Press, they still have a few journalists left, and one of, one of them is Julie Zergo. Um, she was the education editor for a time, and now she's not... However, she's written an opinion piece um, that she doesn't actually explicitly say, it, but I think comes from deep personal experience um, that of what's going on at the moment in inner suburban Melbourne, in inner suburban eastern Melbourne in particular, and what's going on in a little suburb called Richmond. Now, a long time ago in Richmond, and Jean can tell you more about this than I can because she was there, um, there was a Richmond Secondary College which was closed down by Geoffrey Kennett who was the Premier of the state at that time and there were very significant protests and a great deal of violence.
1: It didn't close down because the
2: teachers and the parents kept
1: it going. He tried and he failed.
2: Despite, um, despite that, uh, despite that um, Richmond Secondary College changed its name. Um, it changed its name to Melbourne uh, Girls College, which is a, a state school. It's a state school for girls, down there on the Yarra River. Lovely little place. I've actually taught there myself. Um, it's a girls' school. It's a state school, and it's um, it's it's a very what they would call prestigious school. It has very high ATAR results coming out of it, and um, people can apply to that school on a selective basis based upon their cleverness. And Julie Sogo has written a very interesting article, actually. It was on March the 7th, so just a couple of days ago. And the title of the article was The Trouble With Prestigious Schools and the Students That Miss Out. Because Melbourne Girls' College is called a prestigious school. It's called a prestigious school by the parents who send their children there. It's called a prestigious school by the parents who haven't got their children in there and they're aware of it.
1: Ken closed a girls' school down on the bay. That was the problem. And the parents of those girls wanted a girls' school, so they came up to this prestigious school that was set up in Richmond.
2: Indeed. Now, the area of Richmond is an inner-city area and um, it almost universally returns to federal parliament either a Labor member or someone to do with the Greens. It's very left-leaning, if left and right make sense, or any any sense at all in the education debate. But in the past decade, according to Julia Zergo, the left-leaning families of inner-city Richmond have agitated rightly, for a new high school. Some of us remember the dramatic scenes 25 years ago, I know Jean does, and I do as well, when protest held out against the Kennett government's decision to foreclose the former Richmond Secondary College. So between that time and now, there hasn't been a secondary college in Richmond. But we'll come back to this. But more recently, just in the last few days, um, these left-leaning families have made babies, And those babies have grown up and they've been growing up for some time. So now they actually are of secondary school age. So there's been a baby boom in Richmond and that's coupled with lazy planning and successive governments.
1: Well, there's a lot of boys amongst these babies. That's the problem. There's no place for the boys in Richmond.
2: And so that's actually left families with too few options for a public secondary education. Now, if you cross the river and go up to the other side, there's lots and lots of secondary schools there, but they're not public ones. They're private schools. That's in the sort of what I would call the the horror three-mile square where, where you know, you've got the MLCs and the Scots and the Trinities and everyone's over there, the private schools. But there's no secondary schools in that particular area. So the problem's actually now likely to be rectified partially next year when, assuming things go to plan a $43 million vertical Richmond high school will rise from a barren car park and open its doors to Year 7s. So they're building a new state school. So here at the Dogs, we think that's great, build state schools. But this is where it gets complicated. This is where it's an interesting bit of what I would call bad news, but it relates to the sort of the detail, the detail of the way Australians, certainly Australian parents with a bit of money, view the whole education process. Anyway, back to Julie. Julie says, On hearing this announcement of a new $43 million school, the people rejoiced and gave thanks and pledged their vote to local member Richard Wynn. Mm. Uh, no, they didn't. Not. Things are never that simple or even de- gracious, when the anxious middle-class Melbourne parent is concerned. One local told Domain, which is a real estate website for the age, that she is sitting on the fence about whether Richmond High will measure up to their requirements as an insurance policy. They're planning to nab real estate in Melbourne Girls' College zone just to have options, apparently, because the major earthquake that is the arrival of the Richmond High School will zone many families out of the prestigious (laughs) Melbourne Girls' College. And some of these people had bought property in what they they then thought was the catchment area for Melbourne Girls College with a view to enrolling their daughters in that school.
1: They might have to downsize.
2: Not well. They might have to move into some other very expensive property if they want to do that because their properties have been zoned out of the Melbourne Girls College School. Now, Julie says, I'm not unsympathetic with these families. Many are probably genuine in saying that they're wedded to the idea of a girls-only public school. But, says Julie, it's that persistent reference to prestigious that attests to the broader zero-sum game being played here. The school, Melbourne Girls College, is coveted for its strong academic results. And as much as Julie applauds this, and and indeed the dedicated principal and the talented staff, of which I used to be one years ago, um, let's acknowledge its high ranking on league tables owes at least as much to the class segregation as it does to pedagogical excellence. More than half of Melbourne College's College cohort comes from the top socioeconomic groupings, nearly 30% from the second top. Only 6% of Melbourne Girls' College students belong to the most disadvantaged students. Now, as really Julie says, she knows plenty of girls who gained entry from distant suburbs by writing flawless essays about leadership and so on. Meanwhile, uh, Richard Wynne has accused Melbourne Girls' College of rejecting girls from the commission flats outside the zone. Now, as we know, richer schools have a natural advantage over poorer schools. And segregation begets more segregation. Now this is in a state school. This is this is how parents, what I call the mendacious middle classes, are playing the system. Now leave aside the argument that parents' largely understandable obsession with class purity and ATAR scores, um, do they, this actually doesn't really do their kids any good in the complex, volatile, trumpifying world that we're now in. I'll return to that, says Julie, the other day, and I think we'll certainly return to it here on The Dogs. In fact, I think um, Jean has spoken in detail about what happens when you trumpify education. Now, But the, Julie's point is that the schooling system has become so inequitable and so hyper-competitive that even a $43 million state-of-the-art school does not instantly impress. Instead, Richmond High's newly appointed and highly experienced principal, Colin Simpson, must, and I quote, reassure parents that he'll create an incredible school, in quotes. And to quote him, when people see what I've got planned, it will sweep away any residual concerns they have.
1: It's sometimes the parents too and the school council that, that make a very, very good school. But it's not just the principal.
2: Oh, of course not. But I think what Julie is saying is that the principal has to get out there and sell his unopened school in a marketplace. Now, to pile on the irony, the parents who lobbied for a new Richmond high school were actually partly expressing dissatisfaction with the secondary school that was actually already there. There's already a secondary school there that's not Belmont Girls College, it's Collingwood College. Mm. But that school has been undersubscribed and has euphemistically been called Multicultural. Now, by the way, that's code for has lots of kids from the commission flats. Now, that school, Collingwood Secondary College, according to Julie, wasn't for everyone, and certainly wasn't for everyone according to the lobbyists for the Richmond Secondary School. In truth, Richmond's residents have long wanted to send their kids to a local school, just not necessarily alongside locals. A lot has changed in 25 years, and not all of it is for the better. Now, here I'm sitting here in the studio looking at an artist mock-up for a streamlined, triangular Richmond high school. And I can't suppress the hope that this new school might buck the inner-city trend of white flight, or even, in terms of Richmond, white colonisation.
1: Well, it looks as if it's a bit like the uh, Holyberry College down King Street.
2: Oh, it's all new build, though. All new build. And of course, uh, because it has to be exciting and special and magnificent, like many contemporary school buildings, this new building um, defies the red brick industrial ethos of traditional schools. Um, and this is according to David Tweedle of Hayball Architects, whose firm has the brief for the school.
1: Is it going to be a private-public partnership, I wonder? Of course it is. Oh, that's of, course it is. of course
2: it is. It's being built by public concerns and 's being leased back to the government for 25 years. Now, Julie went to see Tweedle and find out what he had to say about this new school, and he said that the visitor approaching Richmond High School main building will encounter a light-filled atrium on the ground floor and learning everywhere. (laughs) Tweedle envisages students engaged in self-directed learning, in groups or as individual desks, at the cafeteria, in the library, or in acoustically perfect music spaces. Students bent over microscopes from the second-floor science labs that connect to outdoor balconies. Students gathering on tiered open staircases. No more secluded stairwells that invited smokos and biffos. No more narrow corridors or uniform classrooms, but flexible and collaborative learning areas. No more schools fenced from the surrounding community either. Richmond High will seek to draw in locals with pop-up galleries and food trucks. There will be edible gardens that are accessible 24-7 because, and I quote, when kids are welcomed onto the site on weekends, they develop a sense of ownership and look after it better. No more school architecture that condemns kids to the back of the class. Students want to see their opportunities. Now, might the lofty ideals of Richmond High contained in the architectural plans also encourage parents to see opportunity rather than fear? In a school that opens its doors to all, in education, as in most things, the biggest rewards can be found outside their comfort zone. I think she's being more than a little sarcastic. I'm not quite sure what Julia Zergo's background is in this, but I reckon she's an old Richmond girl (laughs) who's come back and been horrified at what she's seen. Um, Well, that's the sort of, I find quite troubling and interesting, not necessarily good news, about the way Australian parents in a certain particular part of inner Melbourne are reacting.
1: I think this is the time to ask Dale to read the EDU Fact Check, uh, which is from the Save Our Schools website, after listening to that very interesting report on the Richmond situation. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got the edgy fact
0: check here. And uh, okay, let's just go on with it. Every now and then we come across a claim about schools that doesn't add up. My school data helps us call it for what it is. See our latest and categories below. Yeah, obviously. Um, Our latest, lots left out. The federal minister is quoted as saying, similar government schools should be treated consistently by the government, wherever they are in australia just as similar non-government schools should be treated consistently by the federal government wherever they are in australia
1: also we can think about collingwood and this new school at richmond in the same breath perhaps
0: hmm. a very blinkered view a bigger problem lies in inconsistencies across sectors and across levels of government we had to come up with a new category so we call his statement an edu fall short our categories edu fact Confirmed by evidence. Edgy fiction, not supported by facts. Edgy fable, not quite the whole story. Edgy falsehood, basically a lie. Edgy fabrication, a constructed lie. Edgy fallacy, well intentioned but wrong. Edufeasible, feasible, could be something in it. Edgy foible, a rather silly st- statement. Edgy fantasy, a figment of imagination. Edufiddle, fiddle, a half truth. Edgy faith, belief rather than evidence. Edgy Furfy, a bit of a rumour. Edgy Fluff, statements that add little. And Edgy Fall Short, doesn't go far enough.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Dale. You're to the dogs here. Defence of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. We are the dogs. Um, we have a website too, www.adogs.info. If you want to check what we're talking about, go there and find out. Um, we'll be back with more good news. Um well, I think it's interesting and good news in Sydney um after a little bit more music Welcome back to the Dogs Programme. That was the and NG by Clarence Ball. Uh, lovely harpsichord music today. If you haven't noticed, we kind of like it. It's nice to share it here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Played by David Kinsella. Played and indeed. By, thank, you, thank you, Jean, by David Kinsella. A
1: state school boy who went to young high school. Oh, very
2: Country nice. boy. Mm. Good country boy playing harpsichord there. He's a Sydney boy now, isn't he? Mm. Um, Well, speaking about Sydney, um, the fascinating article in the Daily Telegraph uh, popped up last week, and and it relates to putting together some data, you know, the NAPLAN data, which we do here at the Dogs Programme. They do it up there at Save Our Schools. Bar Bernie Shepherd also does a fair bit because there's information now. We can work out what the good schools are doing and how they're going about it. It turns out in Sydney, um, if you're paying money to send your child to a a prestigious, prestigious, here's that word again, (laughs) Uh, private school, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah um, there's different ways of saying you're it. You're wasting it. Oh, oh, you're wasting your money. Yes, you're wasting your money. Wasting your money on your aspiration, as often happens. Aspiration is such a trap, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, because public school students are racing ahead of their private school peers in in certain parts of Sydney. And I'll say this again. Um, I keep having to say it. Um, how well educated your child is, that is, in terms of how well they're seen at being... Anal- yeah. Assessed at being good, you know what their A task score is or what their marks are in a test. It's really, really simple. There are a couple of things. If you know about, a couple of things about that child, if you know about that child, um, then you can predict whether how well they're going to do. And the first one's really, really simple. It's how much do their parents value education? If their parents value education highly, they're going to go home and they're going to do well at school. If their parents do not. And they're less likely to. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. That is that is the strongest correlation. That is, what school you go to has got almost nothing to do with it compared to the strength of that correlation. Mm-hmm. How much your parents value education is a very... It, it, it's not a guarantee by no means, but it. but it's the one thing that really, really matters. Now, in Sydney, free public schools are doing just as well as nearby private colleges that charge parents up to $25,000 a year. As educators say, mastering the basics is the keys to improving student results. Now, these are two separate issues. One is a fact. The other one is an extrapolation. One is one is saying state schools are doing just as well, if not better, than a rich private school. And the second one is trying to explain why. And because this article comes from the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, um, they make those two things that both facts. One is a fact. One is a supposition. But the MySchool website is today and that is a couple of days ago, been updated with 2016 data from the National Assessment of the the, the NAPLAN results. They're in for 2016. So parents can make informed decisions about their child's education. The results show that top public schools can hold their own against private ones in the same suburb. Good results follow a welcome revision of the HSC curriculum in New South Wales. Now, among public schools that embarrass their posh private neighbours with their really good results was Lane Cove West Public School, whose Year 5 pupils on average achieve better than the nearby St Ignatius College students in four out of the five skill categories. Bear in mind oh, that St Ignatius in Lane Cove West um, charges parents $23,000 a year as a premium for allowing their child to sit next to all the other children who've also paid $20,000 a year.
1: That's Riverview, isn't it? That's where Mr Abbott and Mr Hockey came from.
2: Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Summer Hill Public School also achieved better average results than the nearby prestigious Trinity Grammar School Year 5 students across writing, spelling, grammar and numeracy. Always did. Always did. Hornsby North Public School students achieved higher results than the expensive Barker College, which charges $25,000 a year across all Year 5 categories. And Burnside Public School in North Parramatta achieved a better result than the prestigious All Boys King School in the category of Year 5 Persuasive Writing. The Australian curriculum, sort of the ACARA, the the, the people who do all, all the measuring, said 400 schools across the country received high gains compared to when the same students took the test last in 2014. Among the list of some examples provided by that particular paper, the Daily Telegraph, were a number of Western Sydney public high schools in called Lansville, Wentworth and Hampton Park public schools. This is all rather interesting, isn't it? Bear in mind these are all primary schools. This is all rather interesting. Fairfield Heights public school, which I attended for a short period of time as well, achieved high gains in numeracy and the acting principal, Susan Craig, said that she was doing that because she was focusing... On the basics of what was important in returning such strong results. Bear in mind that Fairfield Heights has a majority of the population who go home to a home, go home to a home where the language is other than English. And she said, "Look, we target our time to with blocks of time, so it ensures that literacy and numeracy happens every day for an hour in the classroom." Parents have continued to show their support for the my school website, just by the way, um, which clocked up 1.4 million hits last year. Anyway, um, I think this is all rather interesting.
1: So, Ms Gillard did do some remarkably good things. On on uh, we all Ladies' Day uh, this week, this last week, which we celebrated for most of the time on 3CR, I noticed that the ABC had some very interesting interviews with girls, all of whom agreed that their mothers were very important in their lives that their mothers had all worked very, very hard and they all had aspirations uh, because of their education. And so I wondered how far, in fact, the education system had really made a big difference to the girls of this nation. And the teachers and the parents, the mothers, have made a big difference to a whole generation, a new generation of young people. The other thing I saw, which I'd like to remark on, which I think was good news, was an SBS program called Insight. I was hoping that we could actually give you the words of one of the teachers. There was a young Aboriginal boy, well, he's now a man, who was talking about the teacher that made a difference to him. And he was... uh, Bound according to all the other teachers for jail, like so many of the Aboriginal children in the in the middle of Australia, until he took a rock and showed it to his science teacher, and she was very excited, and she took him under her wing, and together, together the the student and the teacher got a geology class going uh, in that school. Now that teacher called herself not just a teacher when she was asked. She said, no, I'm an educator. I'm here. My aim in life is to make children learn and to give them passion for what they're learning and to make them really feel that they can learn and to have success in their learning. Her statement was really something. There were other teachers and and children too who were referred to in Insight, but I just love the way this lady said I'm not just a teacher I'm an educator and in fact that is what so many of the teachers in our public schools are they are not just teachers they are educators because they are interested in getting our children to learn they're not just interested in putting facts and figures into their heads that will come out in the next test but um that was the good news that I had in the last week. There's some other good news from America if they, if, if, America, if any good can come out of America at the moment, well I think it does. I, I tell people that at least we can now see the oligarchs, the nasties for what they are. They're there and they don't they are no longer faceless. but I'll get Robert to tell you what's been on Mother Jones in the last week. Oh, good old Mother Jones. And, th- and thank you to uh, Rolf who sent this to us.
2: Thank you very much, Rolf. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AMDOL. We'll return to the program after these messages.
1: Camp Anarchy is happening again this Labor Day long weekend, March 11th to 13th at the gorgeous bush camp of Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. Get out of the city, camp or stay in cabins, share delicious meals, sing along by the campfire and paddle in the creek. Over the weekend, there will be a program of workshops and skill shares. Childcare is provided and costs are kept to a minimum. Anyone interested in anarchist ideas is welcome. To find out more
0: information, go to campanarchy.org. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au shop. For just $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of radical radio.
1: For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the
0: proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education.
2: Yes, in America. Oh, thanks, Rolf. Um, in Kansas, the governor has ordered... I'm oh, sorry, the courts have ordered the governor... The governor didn't want to. Mm-hmm. The courts have ordered the governor to fund public schools because he didn't want to, apparently. Now, the bad news keeps piling up for Kansas Governor Sam Brownback and his radical budget-cutting experiment. Mm-hmm. The state Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that Republican governor and state literature had, yet again, failed to adequately fund public schools by hundreds of millions of dollars per year.
1: But wouldn't it be wonderful if our, if our Supreme Court or if our High Court had the intestinal fortitude to do something like
2: this? Well, it's interesting because the courts refer to, refer to what they called a constitutional standard. The court ordered lawmakers to devise a plan that would meet constitutional standards by the end of June and mandated a new formula to increase government spending on the state's public education system. Now, the demand for extra education funding couldn't come at a worse time for Brownback as the Governor and Republican-held state legislature are caught in a stalemate on whether Kansas should repeal Brownback's landmark income tax cuts in order to solve shortfalls that have plagued the state budget in recent years. And I quote, and this this is the court's judgment, I think, we conclude the state's public financial system, through its structure and implementation, is not reasonably calculated to have all Kansas public education students meet or exceed the minimum constitutional standard of, acqu- of a- adequacy, the court wrote in an unsigned, unanimous opinion. By underfunding education, the judges said, the state system failed in one fourth of all its public schools to appropriately educate students in basic reading and math skills, and shortchanged half of the state's black students and one third of its Hispanic students. Now, John Robb, an attorney representing the school districts involved in the lawsuit, told the Wichita Eagle, which I think is a newspaper, that ruling repre- the ruling represented justice for kids, noting that the state could be forced to spending anywhere from $431 million to $893 million per year in additional education funding, depending on how lawmakers decide to calculate per pupil spending levels. Now, just to step aside from the article, I think this is what Jean is referring to in terms of Americans' constitutionality. You can't have a democracy unless the population is educated, and this court's saying that you're not educating the population and that is unconstitutional. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yes. To return to the article, which by the way was written by Bo Rader um, for the Wichita Eagle. The state's current legal trouble dates back, in fact, to 2010. When four school districts sued the state, alleging Kansas provided inequitable and inadequate funding to its public education system, the lawsuit attacked state funding from two angles. It alleged the overall pool of money that the state devotes to education was far too low, violating the state's constitutional guarantee of an adequate education. And as Kansas reduced overall school funding... The um, school districts behind the lawsuit noted that the state cuts were inequitably distributed. That distribution, they alleged, hurt the state's poorest districts and discriminated based upon the wealth of the parents in the district. That is, if you have wealthy parents in a district, you don't make cuts. If you have poor people in a district, poor parents, then you do. Now those concerns have only intensified since the lawsuit was first filed. As Kansas has struggled to climb out of a fiscal disaster, after Brownback took over as governor in 2011, he passed historically large tax cuts, promising that lower income taxes would spur economic growth.
1: We've yet to have this proved. Our government keeps telling us this too, but I have never noticed it happen.
2: Well, it's interesting because that's exactly what Donald Trump says yes. and various fellow Republicans. And they want them. to do that at a federal level, cut the taxes and so spur growth. It spurs, the, uh,
1: it spurs the share market. That's all it does.
2: Well, I'm not sure if it's – well, anyway, we can talk about the economics of it later. But mm. those cuts have since – this is in 2011. They've done that in Kansas. Since that time in Kansas, it's been disastrous. Mm leaves the states with a vast budget gap as tax revenue continually comes in below even what he's cut it at. In 2013, a three-judge panel ruled against the state, ordered Kansas to provide an additional $400 million in education funding. It seems completely illogical, the court noted, that the state can argue that a reduction in education funding was necessitated by the downturn in the economy and the state's diminishing resources and at the same time, to solve that problem by cutting taxes. Brownback slammed the ruling for increasing the tax burden on Kansas residents, adding the legislature, not the court, should make school funding decisions. So, in 2014, the state Supreme Court weighed in on the equitable funding side of the lawsuit, ruling that the state's decade-old funding formula did not dedicate enough funds to low-income districts, and violated the state's constitution. At that time, the Supreme Court declined to rule on the question of whether the state's total per-pupil spending was adequate and instead remand, uh, remanded that question back to the lower court. A year later, Brownback signed a law that replaced the state's formula with a two-year block grant system. Ah, block grants, we know about that. It tended as a stopgap until a permanent formula could be devised. Anyway, last February, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the state's block grant effort was, in fact, inequitable as well. The court ordered lawmakers to increase funding for poor districts or risk the statewide school shutdown. Six days before the June deadline, Kansas lawmakers passed an education funding measure that gave $38 million to poor districts and staved off the shutdown. Now, another shutdown looms if legislators failed to come up with another plan to change the state's formula. Now, this decision marks a blow for Brownback and the Republican-led legislature, tasked with drafting a funding plan by the court's new June deadline. In early February, Republican state senators proposed a 5% cut to public education spending for the, last, for the rest of the fiscal year, cutting $120 million in spending through to June and raising income taxes as part of a plan to close the state budget's gap, fair enough, the decision quickly fell apart if to the eye of educators and activists. Lawmakers eventually passed an increase to the state's income tax, but Brown Pack, the governor, vetoed it. What a mess in Kansas. What a mess. What a mess. And this is what they want Trump to do for the rest of the country. Um, yeah, I'm not going to America. is not it about you. It's
0: amazing. Please. What's the purpose of a government apparatus if it shirks its responsibilities to public service? What, what, what is its purpose, external public service?
2: Oh, ah, that's a very good question.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a redundant it's regime. It's just a profit machine. It's got nothing to do with the people. It's disgusting. Hmm.
1: Well, it's really going back almost to the Middle Ages where um, it, it's, it's just the – Oligarchs looking after the oligarchs, and to hear hear certainly with
0: Turnbull that principal in Richmond have to spruik his school like a like a second hand car salesman, demoting himself from principal to the tepid position of plaid
2: suited spiv. Yes, indeed. (laughs) I like that.
0: Education is not a product; it's not a privilege, and it should not be exclusive. Societal equity and stability can only grow from an informed populace. Yeah, so obviously this apparatus doesn't
2: want stability or equity. And it doesn't want an informed populace. I, I, would, even, I would even put it that far. Mm. Luckily, I don't think we're quite that far in Australia. But boy, Kansas, what a Jeez. mess.
1: It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to go back to Diane Ravitch because uh, we need to put all of these developments that we're in the middle of in a worldwide um, industry mindset. Because for the past three decades, critics of public education in the United States, but also in other parts of the world, have assailed it and used its flaws to promote publicly funded privatisation, which really means ready money for your SPIVs, if you like, for your people who just want to make quick money. Uh, Getting into the public treasury has always been the ideal of some religious groups, particularly the... um, the Roman Catholic Church, but by opening up the public treasury, the religious groups have now opened it up for big for-profit corporations. Corporate and political interests have attacked the very concept of public education, claiming that the private sector is invariably superior to the public sector. So our public education is now um, being attacked by these ideologues who I call the promoters of cannibalistic capitalism, because it's eating itself, as we found in 2008. Now, the developments are by no means limited to the United States or Australia. In fact, Australia is further down the line than the United States. The same movement to privatise public schools is occurring, as we've seen, in the United Kingdom, but it's also being um, done in Africa and other regions with very troubling implications. Now, this is very interesting. In Africa, there's a corporation called the Bridge International Academies and it's opening for profit schools in poor countries and it costs the people $1 a week. Liberia is considering outsourcing its entire elementary program to this BIA, Bridge International Academies. It's funded by American billionaires Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg and others from Wall Street. And they're not there to throw money away uh, for a dollar per family. They are there to make money. The Economist magazine wrote a glowing article about BIA's plans to make low-cost schooling available in Africa because existing public schools there are so poorly resourced. That's if they've got them. The potential market of hundreds of millions of children is alluring and it's sure to be profitable. Mm. Teachers in the bridge schools are uncertified. They teach a scripted curriculum from a notebook computer. Many families can't even afford dollars $1 a week, especially if they have more than one child. But meanwhile, the state is relieving itself of responsibility to supply what's being outsourced to private enterprise. And many of the plans to privatise education globally can trace their beginnings back to the ideas and the funding that started in the United States. Well, I would suggest that we also have um, ideas coming out of India with some of the strange Uh, groups that we see here in Australia in the TAFE sector. But it probably started in America, the idea that you have private, for-profit industries. We talk already about our education industry for fee-paying students from overseas. We should have free education for our students and we should have Um, free education for students that come from overseas and it should be like it was in the 50s and 60s, uh, a diplomatic um, giving back to countries in Africa. But um, they say, of course, in America and here in Australia that we can't afford it. Remember, we had to have the GST so that we could have a health system and an education system when Meg Lees sold out on us. Uh, well, we still haven't got our public education system funded, have we? It's still not enough with all the GST that we've paid to have even a Gonski put into our schools. 33 years after a report in the United States in 1983, which started all of this, talking about a nation at risk, you had these developments. But Diane Ravitch points out the United States actually has the strongest economy and the strongest military in the world. Hmm. And yet these privatisation advocates keep up and they have kept up the drumbeat of failure. Well, what the dogs are, are doing every week is saying the failure is not with public education. The failure is with the privatisation of education. Hmm. But that is enough for the moment. Uh, I think that we have... Uh, Had a pretty good go given our time and um, we will now say goodbye for now, reminding you to go to our website at www.adogs.info. But bye for now.
2: Bye for now.
3: I saw Joey here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe Here ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City Joe says, I am standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I dead Says Joe, but I dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I